0: to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host, as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil
1: War Talk Radio. Most of us are familiar with the course of the Battle of Gettysburg... And most of us are justly skeptical when another new book on Gettysburg comes out. Skepticism rises higher when the authors purport to translate the military events of the war's greatest battle into lessons for modern leaders of businesses and other organizations. But what if the leaders, I'm sorry, what if the authors are leaders themselves, military officers with wartime experience as well as years of study? That's the Case with Colonel Jeffrey D. McCoslin and Colonel Thomas Vossler, authors of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. We'll talk with them both tonight on
0: Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to
1: you tonight, as has been the case for the last year and then some, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not the campus of East Carolina University, and not speaking for the university or anyone else, nor will my guests speak for anyone but themselves tonight, as we always do. Uh, Glad to be with you. Sorry that last week we had a mix-up that was entirely my fault and caused us not to do a live show. And thanks to our engineer, Andrew, who bailed me out a few minutes ago, as once again, I was getting all confused with this modern technology, but here we are squared away. Uh, it is the last week of the semester here at East Carolina University, where I'm off campus but teaching, and that uh, will send a shout out to the students in History 3122, American Military History since 1900. Their final exam deadline was last night. Uh, grades will be up by tomorrow. As we finish those, you made it through the pandemic semester. Congratulations. I hope we don't have to do that again. As always, I learned uh, as much from teaching the course as uh, I hope you did from taking it. And congratulations, especially to the students who are graduating. Uh, and uh, in particular, to those in ROTC who will be uh, commissioned this week. Best wishes to you and your service going forward. Speaking of service, an interesting press release came along this week from Army University Press. Some of you may have seen this uh, regarding style. Uh, every press has a style sheet of how they express certain things or punctuate certain things. And uh, Army University Press says they will no longer be using the phrase Union as an adjective for the Union Army, referring to it instead as the United States Army or the Federal Army in terms of the Civil War. This is a, a, a style change I personally made a couple of years ago. I don't do it 100% as, as uh, author Dave Powell points out. Uh, sometimes you, you, you can't say the same adjective four times in a paragraph, so Union Army will creep in occasionally. But I've long thought that it, it, calling the United States Army in the Civil War the uh, sort of antique and specialized term Union Army normalizes the Confederacy as an equally uh, anti-historical event uh, with equal legitimacy to the Union. So I can see why they've taken that away. Uh, When you say the rebels fired on the United States at Fort Sumter, it it packs more punch, uh, showing the enormity of the step they're taking. They're attacking the United States, not just this odd thing called the Union. Uh, Gary Gallagher has written about this, Elizabeth Varin has written about this, a lot of people have written about the power of words union and disunion, uh, that those words don't have anymore in modern discourse, so there are issues with this, calling the Union Army, calling federal troops United States troops confuses regular army troops like the USCT or the the, the pre-war regular army US troops, US regiments. but calling them northern and southern has its issues. Calling them blue and gray has its issues. We all know they wore all kinds of uniform colors. Uh, it's it's not an easy uh, question uh, in terms of writing, but I do think it's an interesting step. And it's provoked a lot of debate online. I've been following one debate at Civil War, where professional historians talk about this usage, and another one at Uh, consum world where uh, military simulation hobbyists talk about this usage and uh, it's it's causing people to think a lot which is a good thing so hopefully you will be thinking next week when you tune into this show uh, next week may 12th 2021 we'll have barbara tomlin author of life in jefferson davis's navy On the 19th of May, we'll get a return visit from Mark Bielski, who has a new book, A Mortal Blow to the Confederacy, The Fall of New Orleans, 1862. Uh, Jim Oakes, who was supposed to be with us last week, will be with us on May 26th. And to round out the season, last three shows of the year, uh, Edward Longacre has a brand new book on uh, David McMurtry Gregg, the unsung hero of Gettysburg, he calls him. And we'll stay on the Gettysburg theme on the ninth with a book that's not even out yet. Kent Masterson Brown comes back to the show. His new book is Mead at Gettysburg, A Study in Command. I'm looking forward to seeing it when it gets published. And we'll finish up Back to the Confederacy with Larry Daniel returning to the show and his book, Conquered, Why the Army of Tennessee Failed. So lots of great stuff. Keep it up. Keep aware of it at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney will keep our record up to date there, tell you who's going to be on. And you can find out there that tonight we have uh, two guests, one new and one an old friend of the show. Uh, Colonel Thomas Vossler returns. He wrote, along with Carol Reardon, an excellent guide to the Battle of Gettysburg. was on, uh, shockingly, was a... Uh, uh, eight years ago now, I thought it was like two <laughs> years ago, uh, and uh, Colonel Jeffrey D. McCausland, the new guest to the show, the two of them have co-written Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st for Twenty First Century Leaders. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show.
3: Well, Jerry, it's good to be back with you, and it has been eight years, believe it or not. <laughs> it well, does time, time does fly when you're having fun.
1: <laughs> Jerry, is, it's great to sure. be with you. Well, you too. I, you and I haven't met. I hope I can call you Jeffrey, uh, or do you go by Jeff? What, well, I go by Jeff, please. Jeff, Jeff it is. Um, well, it's a, a pleasure to have you here. It's an interesting book that you've come up with. I have I read a uh, galley proof of it that was sent by your publisher, so I, I hope I've got pretty close to the final version. Uh, but let me start by asking, what, uh, what gave you the nerve to write yet another Gettysburg book?
3: Well, Well, let me take
4: a hack. Go, go, Tom. Go ahead.
3: No, go ahead. You go ahead.
4: Well, let me take a hack at this. Um, Tom and I met up at the United States Army War College, Jerry, and I was the uh, dean of academics at the War College. That was my final assignment on active duty, and Tom, of course, was the director of the Military History Institute. And you're well aware of the Army War College and the mission of the War College. To sum it up, as the former dean, is to help senior leaders transition from what I would call organizational or we would say in the military operational leadership to being prepared for positions at the strategic level that's what we really do for senior military officers for all services not just the army and also senior members of many of our major uh, departments department of defense central intelligence agency state department as well as a large number of foreign officers that's the mission Annually, we would take the War College students <clears throat> down to Gettysburg, not far from Carlisle, as you're well aware, mm-hmm. for the traditional uh, leadership uh, staff ride. And you're probably aware, Jerry, that one of the reasons why the park actually is formed in the latter part of the 19th century is to forward a place for military officers to do staff rides, which is an opportunity for military leaders to use a battlefield to look at strategy and tactics and operation, and the operational art. And so we would take the students down there uh, and um, having gone down innumerable times, it occurred to me that really, in many ways, this was a case study of two organizations in the midst of a crisis. Um, The three of us could go off to any organization, could be a public service organization, could be a corporation, could be a not-for-profit, could be a, a church, it wouldn't matter. And if we were allowed free access to the organization and were able to talk to people and ask questions, after a couple of days, we could talk about how well or how poorly it was run. But if we happen to be there on the day that the organization was in the midst of a crisis, well, I would argue that good leadership and, and bad leadership sticks out in in bold relief. And you can see it a lot more clearly. And that, of course, is a battle again. Two organizations in crisis, leaders being forced to make decisions under the pressure of, pressure of time. And consequently, good leadership and bad leadership sticks out. And Tom and I are firmly convinced The concepts and principles of leadership, good leadership, exhibited at Gettysburg are not that dissimilar than what it took to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt or to lead in ancient Rome or colonial America or during the Second World War or running a business during a pandemic. Uh, Those principles and concepts are the same, and we thought this case study of Gettysburg afforded us an opportunity to use that story, that very impactful story of Gettysburg, to demonstrate those principles and provide the leader a backdrop, a context from the battle that made that not only illustrative but also interesting.
0: So, how
1: do you define leadership in this context? You, you gave a couple examples back from the Bible through colonial America. Right. What, what What do you mean by that term in this case?
4: Well, we, you know, I always say that you know if you Google the word leadership, you know, we would you would get hundreds of definitions, some long, some short. But over time, having studied this and taught it for many, many years, I've kind of come around to one definition that I like a lot, and that is provided by Dwight Eisenhower, which is leadership is the ability to decide what has to be done and then get people to want to do it. And I like that definition really for three reasons. Uh, Reason number one is it comes from a pretty doggone good leader. I think we would all agree upon that. Five-star general commands the Allied forces for the invasion of Normandy and the march from the West, at least, on to Nazi Germany. Two terms as President of the United States, and historians today treat the Eisenhower presidency a lot better than they did perhaps when Ike actually leaves office. Mm-hmm. A lot of people aren't aware that from the time he retires from the Army until he's elected president, he is the president of Columbia University, so also as the leader in education. And then the other thing I like about that, it's it's short, I can remember that. Slide what has to be done, Get I always want to do it. And then finally, I like the second half of the definition. You know, get people to want to do it. Because you might think for a second, well, my goodness, if I've been president of the United States and I've been a five-star general, I've been the president of a major university, all I got to do is give orders and everybody's going to snap to attention. They're going to rush off as hard as they can run in whatever direction I tell them. But if you've ever led an organization, frankly, in the military, as Tom and I have in innumerable times, or in the private sector, you know to get buy-in, maximum buy-in, from the members of your organization, you, you got to spend some time getting them to the buy in the direction you want to lead the organization. So that's kind of the definition we adopt and the one we use to frame our discussion and battle test it.
1: Let me ask a, a setup question. We're going to take a break in about a minute. So let me give you this question to ponder over that. Um, And this is kind of the elephant in the room question that that came to me immediately on seeing this book. I used to work at the Lincoln Museum, Fort Wayne, Indiana, which was run by Lincoln National Corporation Insurance Company. And they would occasionally send uh, teams to Gettysburg, and I would go with them. They'd get another person as well, but I would accompany uh, them. And they would do the kind of thing that that you're talking about. Tour the battlefield, use the examples uh, uh, to teach leadership. Uh, and I wondered then, and, and I've, I've seen other people raise this question, how do you prevent business people in this case from, from from trivializing or demeaning what happened here, going back to their office and going, oh, it was a great trip. The death of Armistead and Cemetery Ridge is going to help me rake in profit for the shareholders next quarter. How how do you keep that from happening? And that that's... We'll take a break here and, let, and come back with that, because I think it's a really important question. Uh, and, and given your perspective, I know you, you guys will have strong answers for that. Uh, so we'll take a short break. We'll be back uh, in just a few moments with our guests tonight. Uh, they are the authors of Battle-Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders, uh, Jeff McCausland and Tom Vossler. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience.
3: Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 2 p.m. Eastern on
0: Voice America Variety. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Talking tonight with Colonel Jeffrey D. McCosland and Colonel Thomas Vossler, authors of Battle-Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Uh, So I left you both with a a question that that comes up when we see books about historical topics that try to relate them to the modern era. What about the danger of of trivializing this or taking the momentous battle of Gettysburg and turning it into a uh, how can we make more money situation?
3: Well, uh, Jerry, I think that uh, uh, to forestall uh, the reaction and the question which you which you pose, uh, what Jeff and I rely upon in part is um, is our our thirty years each of experience mm-hmm. as, as professional soldiers, uh, establishing basically a credentialing of, as Jeff said, uh, the study of leadership in in a crisis situation, and so. You know, having, being able to say that okay, we've been there, we've done that, and we mm-hmm. recognize it when we see it, and so, in the transition then to to the Gettysburg story, what we highlight, we don't we don't uh, speak uh, too much of of Armistead dying, uh, you know, at the angle and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. We look for a, a wider uh, and and higher level of analysis. Um, and we, we, we bring in stories of the battle. We bring in examples of the battle, not only positive, but also negative, because you also l- learn from negative examples uh, of, of, of leadership in this battle. And, and I think the success that we've had, both in our seminars over the last uh, 10 years, our leadership seminars, and in the book, uh, is best exemplified by uh, by the reaction of the participants or the readers, the participants of the uh, seminar or the readers of the book, mm-hmm. in which in which they tell us in feedback that we uh, made the leadership lessons real for them, that we closely tied the civil war battlefield examples to practical leadership concepts of today. So it's I think uh, in our background that we can make we can make that transition and and tell a story that is that is meaningful and, and people understand yeah these guys have have been there they've done that and so we're gonna pay attention Jeff
4: yeah I would just add you know first of all And all the times that Tom and I have run seminars on the battlefield, and I can't tell you, nor can he, how many times we've done that. And Mm -hmm. we've done that for corporations up to and including McDonald's Corporation, um, major large energy corporations, big law firms, major nonprofits, public service organizations, organizations, uh, elements of the United States government. I've never seen that happen either during the seminar or in talking to participants afterwards. I've never seen that happen. Secondly, we begin by talking about how did this all happen? It was an accident. Mm-hmm. 175,000 guys decided to show up in South Central Pennsylvania in summer 1863. And so to contextualize it in the case of the war as a whole, and I think some Americans today just kind of lose sight of what a monumental, iconic inflection point in our history this was measured in blood you consider, and nobody knows exactly, maybe, Jerry, you can tell us, but the numbers I see mm-hmm. say low side 600,000 people die, high side 700,000 or more people die during the American Civil War. Probably doesn't count civilians very well. Doesn't talk about how many are badly wounded, how many lose limbs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're talking about a country at that time of about 30 million. So we're talking one out of every 30 people or is either killed or wounded badly in this particular war. Um, and will go on uh, after Gettysburg, Gettysburg serving as really the midpoint, not only in terms of time in some ways, but also the midpoint in terms of death. So that's overwhelming number, which exceeds, I think, still today, the total number of of those we've lost in every other war the United States has ever fought. And then when you do things like, you know, take groups and you have them, as we do, uh, walk a portion of Pickett's Charge, and you talk to them about what gets people to do that, and we're talking about the cohesion of a team, whether that team is working in, a, in an organization today. Uh, people do things under extremists for each other. You know, the patriotic themes of Dixie or the Star Spangled Banner or the Stars and Bars and all those things certainly are important. But Tom and I have agreed from our time in combat, ultimately in combat, people mm-hmm. fight for each other. And it's the cohesion. And as we have walked parts of Pickett's Charge and called out birthdays so people would drop off who were wounded, I've actually had people weep at that particular time as they imagine what that must have been like. And then we wrap up our workshops always, because I think the story of Gettysburg has to include the speech. And so when you finish a seminar, as we do the book, and you go into the cemetery and you look at all the uh, monuments to the unknowns, and you stand where Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, and you then contextualize the aftermath. It's pretty hard for me to see. You'd have to be a pretty tough capitalist to take that, <laughs> trivialize it from there.
1: Well, that, that's. <clears throat> I will say when I first saw the title of the book, my my first reaction was, "Really, someone's going to do that?" And then when I saw who had written it, and I was familiar with Tom's work, and and saw your titles and read your biographies, I said, "If anyone, you know, has earned the right to write a book like this, it's these guys." Uh, so, so let's find out what they have to say, and I'm glad I did. It was, uh, it's an extremely engaging book. I will certainly say that. Uh, let me ask you: You look at some vignettes that, that again, most listeners to the show are familiar with. Uh, I'm curious about the process. How did you decide? Were, were there any chapters in the book where the two of you disagreed, where 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 you really did not think this bit belonged, or you really wanted something else more?
4: Oh, uh, I can't, Tom. Oh, I can't think of any. I'll go you. <laughs> <time.
3: laughs> no, no, I can't think of any because um, we had done these seminars. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, based on the th- when we started writing the book, we had done these seminars on the field for about eight years, uh, and so by then, by the time we started writing the book, we had resolved mm-hmm. any differences. Uh, of, uh, of opinion that we had or observation. And at the same time, we had confirmed those specific vignettes, those specific seri- uh, scenarios that we thought were important to the story. And, and, of course, I say story. It is, after all, a series of stories drawing mm-hmm. out the positives and the negatives uh, based on, on individual leadership, and organizational effectiveness. I mean, that's that's what we're after in terms of uh, the final delivery on the on whether it's a, it's a seminar or this particular book. And so we had resolved uh, all those issues, and it was just a matter of committing it to writing. Now, it may be that in writing the book, we put ourselves out of business in terms of seminars. I don't know. <laughs> that, that, remains, that remains to be seen, but there's no substitute. I think we all know. There's Mm -hmm. no substitute for being on the field, being on the field itself.
1: No, I'm sorry.
4: I just just add one thing to that, Jerry, and that is, Mm -hmm. in some ways, for me at least, I I think I wrote this book out of frustration. And and the reason I say that is because I think the story of Gettysburg is so rich, not only in terms, certainly in terms of the history that Tom does so well, um, but all of the the anecdotes and all the the references to leadership concepts and principles, both individual and organizational, that you can make. But when you're leading a seminar on the field, you, ha- you understand that you can only hold this group's attention physically, probably to talk about maybe three at the most, maybe four concepts in any one particular stop. We all know that if you've mm-hmm. ever been on a battlefield. So that causes to pare things down. But writing the book, well, that op- that Releases you from those limitations, <laughs> and therefore, I'd almost turn your question on your head and say, mm-hmm. Jerry, and say that it was out of frustration we wrote it. Because then we could expand on this in places where we couldn't do it uh, on the field because of just you know time and attention and and getting through you know the day on and completing the whole story. I
1: I, I was tempted to ask which would recreate that frustration for you both uh, if you were limited, and I'm sure you get towards where so they say we we love to be here, but our budget's limited, our time's limited, we can only go one or two places. Um, but l- I, I, I don't want to ask that question, uh, where would you go? Because it's not a fair question. Um, let me ask differently, where do you start uh, a seminar like this? Do you, do you do it chronologically or thematically?
4: No, you, you have to do it chronologically, and then I'll turn over Tom. I think first thing you have to do is you have to contextualize it, like I said, because otherwise it's just sort of the story out of context. And, and the, when, when you talk about leadership, again, uh, strategic leaders, particularly Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis really, um, have to make some very, very significant choices that lead up to this battle. I mean, it all begin, begins in a way, you might say, when the Confederacy after Chancellorsville decides, well, it's time for us to have a strategic planning conference and all corporations do that every once in a while. We get our leadership together and we say, okay, What's our strategy moving into the future? And as Henry Kissinger once said, you got to have three options. And lo and behold, they had three options. Um, so it really begins with that to put it in a context. And then you move on from there, uh, I think, and, and, and uh, move up with the first person. And I'll pass this to Tom, which is John Buford, uh, who, if you study the battle, to my mind, is the person who decides there's going to be a battle at Gaysburg.
3: Well, I, I totally agree, and it's a matter of putting it in context. Now, the people out there tonight that are listening to our conversation uh, have a—I uh, mean, we refer to them as civil warriors, and, and they have an interest in the American Civil War in mm-hmm. particular, military history in general. But the public that we bring in for our seminars—I'm telling you—we uh, have to—we have to start somewhere in putting the Civil War in context with American history and then Gettysburg in context with that Civil War. And so everything is in context and it flows chronologically, as Jeff mentioned. You know, we, we, we bring the Confederate Army up out of Virginia. We cross the Potomac into Maryland and into Pennsylvania. We, we, we bring the Federal Army up uh, across the Potomac nine days later. We relieve uh, General Hooker, we appoint George Meade three days before the battle and so we set the stage in that kind of detailed scenario in terms of providing context and then at the critical points, at the critical decision points we, we need uh, what we seek to do is get into the decision cycle of the appointed leaders, be it Buford, be it Ewell, be it Lee and Longstreet be it strong Vincent, we go to Little Round top. We don't mm-hmm. we, you know we don't feature Joshua Chamberlain. He's not our hero at Little Round Top. Colonel Vincent, as the senior leader, as the brigade commander of four regiments, he is the guy we focus on. And so it's those kind of individuals that we single out and we focus on the decision making cycle for each of them in deciding, what they're going to do.
4: Well, well and, you know, and one other thing, Jeremy, yeah. good is that going chronologically also then allows you to finish with the speech. I keep coming back to that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if there's not a victory at Gettysburg, there's not a Gettysburg address. And that uh, speech, which offers Lincoln in very, very few words, to, I think, cast a revised vision for the organization and does and does it in an outline that I would argue any leader to even today can use when discussing his, his or her vision for their organization.
1: So let me push on the Buford example for a minute. And, and we're not going to go through the whole battle tonight because we don't have the necessary six or 12 hours, unfortunately.
2: <laughs> but uh, if, if, if you just
1: stay with Buford for a moment, uh, you make an interesting argument that, that he gives us a good example of uh, using initiative. You point out they don't have cell phones. They can't ask for help at every minute. Uh, and he's the right guy in the right place. But if we turn that on its head, uh, Lee gave A.P. Hill discretionary orders. He makes his initiative-driven decision of what to do on July 1st, which is contrary to what he was told to do. Uh, He brings on a general engagement. Strong Vincent does what he was not told. He he was told to do something else, go reinforce the, the wheat field, but he says, no, I'll follow this change of circumstances and do the right thing and save the battle. A.P. Hill says, well, circumstances have changed. I'm going to do the right thing and push through this line of troops ahead of me. Um, one's right and one's wrong. What, what, what is the lesson we take out of that?
4: Well, I would say, you know, for, um, for Buford, to me, the real lesson is what I, we call leading the boss, Mm-hmm. You know, in our, in our parlance in the 21st century, of course, he'd be a one star general, and, and John Reynolds would be a three star general as a corps commander. So, when he arrives, he makes an assessment of the situation quickly. He determines the Confederates are in significant numbers to his west and possibly north. And he selects McPherson's Ridge because he determines that the critical terrain in the area actually are Cemetery Ridge and the Roundtops. And so, by positioning forward, I've got the opportunity to trade space for time because I'm going to get hit by a force that is much larger than my own. And then he sends a series of messages back to Reynolds, which basically are summarized by saying the following. Hey, boss. Oh, we, I have occupied grounds the west of Gettysburg. I believe the Confederates are here in large numbers. Get the infantry up here first thing in the morning. And so he's leading his boss. He's mm-hmm. saying, this is what we ought to do. Now, uh, What uh, Reynolds could have said was sent a minister forward and said, hey, why don't you come back here? We'll have a committee meeting. We'll discuss (laughs) options. We'll link arms. We'll sing Kumbaya for a while and figure out what we're going to do. But we know what he did. I got this message from Buford. I trust Buford. So decisions now are made at the speed of trust. I have a subordinate. He's saying this is what we should do. We have done, I like to say, the Vulcan mind meld. If that's what John Buford says we should do, that's what we should do. And the only order, I think, that, and Tom will correct me if I get this wrong, that uh, John Reynolds gives is accelerate the movement towards Gettysburg. (laughs) Hurry up. we got to get there. Uh, So these two guys can work together. Mm -hmm. This means, first of all, that there has to be trust between them. And second of all, that the leader, in this case Reynolds, has created a climate whereby he can be led. And I like to say, you know, having taught at the Naval Academy and taught leadership for an old soldier, perhaps one of the best examples is, you know, if you're the captain of a ship, it doesn't do much good if somebody comes to you and says, hey, captain, by the way, we're six inches from an iceberg. That's interesting. It's just not very useful. (laughs) Six miles from the iceberg, that's interesting and useful. And so leaders have got to develop a climate in their organization where they get the unvarnished truth in a timely fashion from their subordinates. Trust is established. And therefore, their you know, subordinates are empowered to act, particularly at difficult moments, whether it's a corporation or a military formation.
1: And, and certainly, we see that with Buford and Reynolds there. And, and you show other examples of that going forward uh, and, and and the way that uh, leaders work with their subordinates and trust them to do the right thing. Uh, we're going to take another short break. Let me give you another leading question to think on as, as we go into the break. Uh I love this stuff. This is what I do for a living. You obviously love it as well. You've taught it. You've lived it, uh, and and people are listening to this show because they love it too. Otherwise, they listen to something else. But you must get it. well. You said you get a lot of people in your seminars who who don't have the familiarity with the Civil War, and you know as time marches on, generations change. We're going to see fewer and fewer people. Uh, I imagine, with this passion for the war, uh, didn't grow up with it, the more and more leaders won't be white and male and see Civil War generals as reflections of themselves. How do you make Buford and Reynolds relevant to the next generation that doesn't look like them, doesn't care about them, and hasn't learned about them as we did? So we'll take a break. We'll come back with that question for our guests tonight, Jeff McCausland and Tom Bossler. They're the owners of Battle owners—they're the authors of, and owners, I hope, of of copies of battle-tested Gettysburg leadership lessons for 21st-century leaders. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio,
0: streaming live—the leader in internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Attention veterans, are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style gear up with marine corps trained motivator christina silva christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators get the military heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to the christina silva show we're educating our veterans live on the christina silva show live at 5 p.m pacific time on the voice america variety channel That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil
1: War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Colonel Jeffrey D. McCausland and Colonel Thomas Vossler, authors of Battle-Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Uh, so, Gentlemen, I left you with the, the question, how do we make this relevant for 21st century leaders?
3: Well, Jerry, I think uh, at least we wish to believe that through our uh, the delivery on our seminars and through the writing of the book, one of the first things we do is we make the the key characters, as I call them, the key characters, uh, we make them real. Mm-hmm. We make them real people and and not some uh, mythological figure. We try to uh, clothe them in real clothes and 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 make them as real and relevant to our to our audience uh, as we can, and that goes uh, primarily through our descriptions, so that they can associate. We we want to get them, our audience, to associate with each individual that we're talking about, because the concepts that we draw out from that individuals demonstrated leadership principles we crosswalk that over to each individual in the group or any individual reading the book and then they can identify with the problem they understand what they're being what the uh, the key character is being confronted with and what the what the choices are and how what decision would they make we have throughout the uh, Uh, the book, as well as our seminars, we have leadership challenges where we actually put the person, we say, okay, you are now General John Buford, you are now General Richard Ewell, you are now Colonel Strong Vincent, here's the situation, what are you going to do? And then we give them time to read, time to puzzle on it, in group discussion for our seminars, um, and then we give them, all right, this is what the individual did, and these are the reasons why that key character did what they did during the battle. Jeff?
4: Yeah, and you know, I was listening to your question, Jerry, it struck me, that's really the ultimate question of history. It's not mm-hmm. the ultimate question of Gaysburg, it's the ultimate question of history. Why do we bother to study uh, history at all? I think Tom's is exactly right, and they're making it relevant. And we firmly believe, in fact, a phrase we use frequently is mm-hmm. you learn from the past to prepare for Bear the future. For the future. Mm-hmm. But if you think about Gettysburg, this is a particularly iconic event in American history because I like to say, and I'm sure historians who are on this call will disagree with me and that's fine, that's that's useful. Uh, in our history, we fought a lot of battles, but there are really, one some lost some, there, there are really only two battles in which the entire fate of the country hangs in the balance on a particular afternoon. And those two battles are first Yorktown. If you fail at Yorktown, we're still perhaps going to be a British colony to this very day. Uh, and, and if you fail at Gettysburg, then maybe Abraham Lincoln doesn't get reelected and you don't have a Gettysburg address. And and you can spin, you know, uh, notional history out from there. Um, so that makes it all that more relevant because of its iconic nature. And then, as you use this, as Tom pointed out, you know, to do these exercises and talk about leadership insights, and we always stress, of course, that the exercises we do are not a history test. We don't much care whether you know what John, what George Mead did or John Buford did. It doesn't matter. What we want to know is what you would do and why. Mm-hmm. We do use those. It gives them a chance to do that, and tying it to a story gives it a certain amount of what I call stickiness that people will remember. It'll stick with them. We could Tonight, we could sit here and we could talk about a whole bunch of leadership concepts and we'd bore everybody to sleep in about five minutes or so. But by tying it to stories, this is mm-hmm. how people learn. And I was looking today, I'm not making this up, and I'll send it to you if you want confirmation. <laughs> but Tom and I just finished a corporate group <laughs> on the battlefield about two weeks ago. Yep. And I got the uh, feedback, which was very complimentary, quite frankly. And mm-hmm. I was thinking as you asked that question, one person actually wrote... You know, I learned more about history in this one day with Tom and Jeff on the battlefield than I learned in my four years of college of history. And I think that's that they really got it wrong. What they learned was more things that they could apply. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they didn't learn more dates or or learn more biographies of famous people or things or things like that. What they learned was history in, in a relevant sense, learning from the past to prepare for the future that they could ap- apply. Um, as we go into the future, obviously, that will continue to be a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But Gettysburg, I think, is unique. And we've found that not only have we had Americans, Tom and I, my goodness, we've had Saudis, we've had Brits, we've had <laughs> Russians. we, uh, And all around the world, uh, people may know little, very little about um, the American Civil War, but they all know about Gettysburg.
1: So let me pursue that. Do you get people who know I'll say too much about Gettysburg where you're, you're given <laughs> a seminar and they say, well, you know, Sickles made the right move here. Or, I'll tell them that's yeah. for you, buddy.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that goes back. Let me put my battlefield guide uniform on. Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes we do uh, get, uh, you know, we're going to stump the professor here mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I mean, we tend to focus on, uh, on the practical things, we don't much care um, um, how many buttons are on the front coat of whoever's uniform. Uh, you know, back in the old day, Mike Weiner or, or, or uh, uh, up there at uh, Randy Hackenberg up at MHI could tell you that mm-hmm. uh, they were they were on the staff when I was the director of MHI. So we tended to move beyond that and. Uh, and all right, we will we will receive uh, and incorporate uh, comments from the audience. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, but uh, uh, in our groups, we don't really find that as too much of a, uh, a an issue with with the groups that we have. And as Jeff suggested, uh, most of them uh, have gone off into other work and uh, admit that. In the time reading the book or the time spent on the field with us, they learned uh, more about uh, about history specifically of the of the 19th century of the American Civil War and are happy for it.
4: Yeah, we have the other extreme times, though, of course, Jerry, and that is people who know too little. I mean, uh, yeah. T- Tom and I were asked once, you know, I understand where the I now understand where the Confederate Army was and where the Union Army was, where was the British Army? <laughs> uh, th- that has actually been asked uh, on the field. So uh, one thing we try to do, of course, we work with groups in advance that prepare them to come. We don't just scoop up a bunch of people, you know, in, a, in individual enrollments. Uh, and we stress a lot for people to kind of do some preparation, and most most do. Mm-hmm. And usually we emphasize, you know, watching the film Gettysburg uh, and, and or reading the book Killer Angels. Uh, again, are those phenomenal historical works? And I'm sure the historians on the call probably say, no, they're not. Uh, but they're they're sufficient enough to give you a depiction, a reasonable depiction of the principal characters, I would say, and the general outline uh, of the battle in the form that, you know, the average uh, pretty well-educated uh, adult could absorb.
1: That makes sense. Let me, we have a short amount of time and, and listeners... To to get a sense of how these authors take these vignettes and turn them into lessons, we talked about Buford as an example tonight. Uh, but you really got to read the book to 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 get the the feel of all of them. Let me ask another process question. The book has a remarkably, uh, I would call, a thick index, and I've in in my own experience, frequently the publisher hires an indexer and does it for you. Did you guys do the index for this? <laughs>
4: No, we did not <laughs> no <What laughs> we, <what laughs> we insisted we insisted that we really wanted to have, because of our own experience in writing and to Tom as a historian, that we wanted a thorough index. and and our publisher was pretty forthcoming. I don't recall having to argue too hard for that, did we Tom?
3: No, no, we didn't. and and we we impressed upon them in the very beginning that this was an absolute requirement. And we were not going to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, going back to, um, uh, our Gettysburg field guide that Carol Reardon and I did, mm-hmm. uh, actually, my son did the index for it, uh-huh. but I wasn't I wasn't going to ask him to do this one.
1: Well, it, it is a very helpful index in, in that it, it it's more detailed than one normally sees, but it means you can find things and especially for the kind of audience you work with, uh, that, that I think would be a great thing. Uh-huh. Uh, with just a couple minutes left, now I will put the hard question, uh, you can only take me one place, uh, for 30 minutes on the battlefield. Uh, where would each of you take me?
4: Go ahead, Tom. Um,
3: I would, believe it or not, I'd probably take you to the angle. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you the contrasting story of the night of July 2nd, the night of the second day of the battle. I would put you into the Council of War with George Meade, and then I would take you across mentally to uh, to Atalee's headquarters and put you in the room with him as as both respective officers decide what they're going to do on the third day of the battle. To me, that is a very critical period. It's a very interesting study in leadership. At the at the highest level, of course, for these two men. Uh, but uh, I I would I would recount to you that story. Okay.
4: And, and I would Jeff. take you, and this may surprise some of our listeners. I would take you to the cemetery. Hmm. I would take you to where Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address, because to me, in terms of the impact of Gettysburg, it's the battle and the speech together. The only speech I know that has been translated into multiple languages. There are monuments to a speech. It's the only speech I know that there's monuments to the speech. And there's two principal reasons. And one is the outline I mentioned before can be used by any leader. What does Lincoln talk about? Where we've we been four score and seven years ago, which takes you back to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, which he thought was the foundation of the democracy. Where are we right now? We're met on a great battlefield. of This war it is right and proper. We should be here. Where are we going? we're going to a new birth of freedom. Uh, and I believe firmly that um, in doing so, Lincoln used that as an opportunity to cast this new vision uh, for the nation finally, that the war had been about preserving the Union, and that's what he talks about in the first inaugural, and that's what it's—that's our vision, preserving the Union. But when you leave Gettysburg Cemetery on the afternoon, of the 19th of November, that is now inextricably linked to ending slavery in the United States. These two things now are part of an expanded vision He'll run on that, much to the opposition of many leading Republicans, for re-election in 1864. And finally, of course, this illustrates the importance on the leadership side of the question of time and timing. And I like to say leaders uh, preserve time. They They manage the clock because they get to decide, and they get to decide when they're going to decide. But the flip side of that is timing. When is the right moment to make a decision? I think Lincoln was wrestling with that. And the reason he comes to Gettysburg is this is the right moment to cast this expanded vision for the nation.
3: If one of our
1: listeners happens to be a CEO and wants to take uh, her or his group out to to see the battlefield, where do they contact uh, you?
4: Best way to do that would be to contact me directly at Jeff at Diamond6Leadership.com. And the, and the six, it has to be spelled out. Uh, or you can find uh, more about uh, the company that I run that we do the workshops with at www.diamond6, again 6 spelled out, uh, leadership.com. And we'd be delighted to talk to them.
1: And if you can't go to Gettysburg uh, with, with Jeff McCauslin and Tom Vossler, which sounds like it would just be an utterly fascinating experience, you can get the flavor of it from their book, Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Uh, I wish we had uh, more time to talk about it. We're at the end of our hour. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio.
3: Well, Jerry, thanks for uh, thanks for ha- uh, having us tonight, and it's good to be back with you again after eight years after the Gettysburg <laughs> after the Gettysburg field guide, which is uh, which is still going quite well, thankfully, and and uh, and, uh, and so we uh, we appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thanks, Very Jerry. Much. Well, again, thank you both and listeners as always. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.